Chapter Two of Alexander Hamilton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Vermont. Alexander Hamilton by Charles A. Conant. Chapter Two The Fight for the Constitution. Part Two. Hamilton spoke on a few other occasions on subsidiary points connected with the draft of the Constitution, but it was only at the close of the convention that he again came resolutely to the front to exert a strong influence over his associates. When the final draft of the new frame of government had been completed, several delegates showed symptoms of refusing to affix their signatures. The great weight of Franklin was thrown into the scale, to urge that the delegates go back to the people presenting the semblance of harmony instead of divisions. I consent to this constitution, he declared, because I expect no better, and because I am not sure that it is not the best. Washington sought also to secure unanimity, and Hamilton declared, I am anxious that every member should sign. A few, by refusing, may do infinite mischief. No man's ideas are more remote from the plan than my own are known to be. But is it possible to deliberate between anarchy and convulsion on the one side, and the chance of good to be expected from the plan on the other? Such words had some weight, but not enough to secure unanimity. All the states voted for the Constitution, but several delegates went on record against it and Hamilton's two associates from New York were absent. It was this alone which saved New York from being recorded against the Constitution. Hamilton did not shrink from putting down his signature as the representative of his state. It was he who, in a bold, plain hand, inscribed on the great sheet of parchment the name of each state, as the delegations came forward, one after another, in geographical order, and affixed their signatures to the precious document which was to found the government of the United States. Hamilton returned to New York, determined to use his utmost powers to secure the ratification of the Constitution as the best attainable means of averting the dangers of disunion. Although cordially supported by John Jay and Edward Livingston, Hamilton, in the fight for ratification in New York, was the natural leader. He found arrayed against him the whole influence of Governor Clinton and the dominant party in New York politics. Clinton was not absolutely opposed to Union, but he attached to it so many reservations that for practical purposes he was an opponent of the new Constitution. The battle over ratification began on the question of the choice of delegates to the state convention. It was in this field that Hamilton fought the great fight with his pen, which has left to posterity the fine exposition of the Constitution known as the Federalist. A society was formed in the city of New York to resist the adoption of the Constitution, and articles soon began to appear in the local press criticizing and opposing it. Preparing a vigorous letter while gliding down the Hudson, in reply to some of the first points of the opposition, Hamilton soon extended the project into a series of strong papers, which appeared twice a week for twenty weeks, over the signature of Publius. 
he secured the aid of Madison and Jay, who wrote some of the papers, but the project was Hamilton's. The majority of the papers were written by him, and to him has been justly given the credit of the well-knit and powerful arguments afterwards printed under the title of The Federalist. Taking up, point by point, the provisions of the new Constitution, Hamilton, by skillful argument, drawn from the closest abstract reasoning, the recent experience of the states, and the history of foreign countries, sought to show that the new Constitution was based upon sound principles of government, that it was well calculated to carry out these principles, and that its acceptance was practically the only course open to the American people to ensure for themselves the benefits of liberty, prosperity, and peace. The Federalist, although a purely political argument, has survived the occasion which called it forth as one of the master documents of political writing. That it has a distinct place in literature is admitted by so severe a critic as Professor Barrett Wendell in his recent Literary History of America. It is worthwhile quoting his acute literary judgment of its merits. As a series of formal essays, the Federalist groups itself roughly with the Tatler, the Spectator, and those numerous descendants of theirs which fill the literary records of 18th-century England. It differs, however, from all these, in both substance and purpose. The Tatler, the Spectator, and their successors dealt with superficial matters in a spirit of literary amenity. The Federalist deals in an argumentative spirit, as earnest as that of any Puritan divine, with political principles paramount in our history, and it is so wisely thoughtful that one may almost declare it the permanent basis of sound thinking concerning American constitutional law. Like all the educated writing of the 18th century, too, it is phrased with a rhythmical balance and urbane polish which give it claim to literary distinction. While the written arguments of Hamilton in The Federalist have survived for a hundred years and been consulted by foreign students in the formation of new constitutions, a more severe task was imposed upon him at the meeting of the state convention called to consider the report of the convention at Philadelphia. It was in some respects the hardest task ever set with any hope of success before a parliamentary leader. Indeed, to the superficial observer, there would have seemed to be no hope of success, when in the elections to the state convention the supporters of Governor Clinton chose 46 delegates and left on the side of Hamilton only 19 of the 65 members. But this statement of the case gives a somewhat darker color to the situation than the real facts. There was a strong and growing body of public sentiment for the Constitution in New York City and the counties along the Hudson, which even led to the suggestion that they should join the Union in any event and leave the northern counties to shift for themselves. It was generally recognized, moreover, that, however strong the objections were to the Constitution, the choice lay practically between this Constitution and none, between the proposed government and anarchy. So strong was the sentiment that the Constitution must be accepted in some form that its opponents in the state convention did not venture upon immediate rejection. Fortunately, their course in fighting for delay only tended to make it clearer that New York would stand alone if she failed to ratify. While the dream of independent sovereignty, or the leadership in a federation which should dictate terms to the surrounding states, was not without its attractions to the more ambitious of the opposition leaders, there was a darker side to the proposition which was much less attractive. 
independence for new york meant a heavy burden of taxation for a separate army and navy for guarding long frontiers on the east north and south for supporting an extensive custom service along the same frontiers for maintaining ministers at foreign courts and consuls in the leading cities of the world and for meeting all the other expenses of a sovereign nation it was fortunate for the state and the country that the leader of the opposition to the constitution in the new york convention was a man of a high order of ability whose mind was open in an unusual degree to the influence of logical reasoning this man was melanchthon smith who was accorded by chancellor kent the great authority on american law the credit of being noted for his love of reading tenacious memory powerful intellect and for the metaphysical and logical discussions of which he was a master it is as much to his credit as that of hamilton that he finally admitted that he had been convinced by hamilton and that he should vote for the constitution this result was only reached however after a long and sometimes acrimonious struggle in which hamilton was on his feet day after day explaining and defending each separate clause of the constitution not only in its real meaning but against all the distorted constructions put upon it by the most acute and jealous of critics but events had been fighting with hamilton state after state had ratified the new document and news of their action had reached new york nine states the number necessary to put the constitution in force were made up by the ratification of new hampshire june twenty first seventeen eighty eight still new york hesitated and hamilton wrote to madison our chance of success depends upon you symptoms of relaxation in some of the leaders authorize a gleam of hope if you do well but certainly i think not otherwise virginia justified his hopes by a majority of eighty-nine against seventy-nine for ratification june twenty fifth seventeen eighty eight the news reached new york on july third the opposition there though showing signs of relenting was still stubborn conditional ratification with a long string of amendments was first proposed jay firmly insisted that the word conditional must be erased finally on june eleventh he proposed unconditional ratification melanchthon smith then proposed ratification with the right to withdraw if the amendments should not be accepted hamilton exposed the folly of such a project in a brilliant speech which led smith to admit that conditional ratification was an absurdity other similar proposals were brought forward but they were evidently equivalent to rejection by indirection which would have left new york out of the new union finally samuel jones another broad-minded member of the opposition proposed ratification without conditions but in full confidence that congress would adopt all needed amendments with the support of smith this form of ratification was carried by the slender majority of three votes july twenty sixth seventeen eighty eight by this narrow margin it was decided that new york should form a part of the union and that the great experiment in representative government should not begin with the two halves of the country separated by a hostile power commanding the greatest seaport of the colonies hamilton thus played an important part in winning the first great battle for the constitution ratification was only one of many steps which remained to be taken before the new government was in working order 
Hamilton hurried back to the Federal Congress and carried an ordinance fixing the dates and the place for putting the new government in operation. When he returned to New York, he was beaten for re-election to Congress, and Governor Clinton and his party retained such a firm grip upon the legislature that a deadlock occurred between the Federalist House and the opposition Senate. New York was unrepresented in the first electoral college and had no senators at the meeting of the first Congress. The state elections which followed resulted in defeat for the Federalists in the election of the governor, but they carried the legislature and elected two senators, General Schuyler and Rufus King. King had recently come from Massachusetts, and Hamilton's insistence that he should be chosen caused a breach with the Livingstons, which contributed to the defeat of Schuyler two years later and the election of Aaron Burr. Hamilton's course in this matter was one of many cases in which he showed that he was not an astute politician, nor an adept at dealing with men. His highest qualities were those more distinctly intellectual, which led him to drive straight towards a desired object with little patience for smaller men or the obstacles which stood in his way. End of chapter 2, part 2 Recording by Daniel Vermont.